This is the Beyond the Studio podcast. I'm Amanda Adams. And I'm Nicole Muller, and we're here to help you figure out the business of being an artist. Here we'll have honest conversations with artists, makers, and business experts, and dive deep into the work that happens beyond the studio. This episode is brought to you in partnership with Art World Conference, a business and financial empowerment conference for artists and arts professionals. As cultural partners, we're bringing you an ongoing series of exclusive interviews with guest speakers, working artists, and business experts. On today's episode of Beyond the Studio podcast, we are really excited to introduce Jessica Lee, who is a partner in the advanced media and technology practice at Loeb & Loeb, where she counsels clients on the privacy and intellectual property issues that arise when launching, marketing, and monetizing digital products and content. So we are very excited to have somebody with her legal background on the show today. And Jessica, thank you so much for agreeing to do this. Yeah, thanks for having me. We were first introduced to Jessica's work. I first heard her speak at last year's Art World Conference in New York City, where she was one of the presenters. She is also a presenter at this year's Art World Conference. So this episode is in collaboration with them as well. And if you are looking to find out more about Jessica's work um, or want to hear her speak again, um, there are the upcoming Art World Conference events this month. So just wanted to mention that. But um, Jessica, just to kick us off, could you um, maybe start by sharing a little bit of your own backstory? Maybe talk a little bit about your practice, like what your focus is in law and maybe how you found yourself on this career trajectory. Sure. Um, So I'm a partner, like you said, in the media technology practice at Loeb & Loeb. You know, Loeb, I think, historically is known as an entertainment firm. We have a big entertainment practice based out in L.A. And my group is sort of the digital, uh, I guess, counterpart to that. So most of the clients we deal with are either creating digital content. They're publishers. They have websites. They have mobile apps. Some of them have, you know, connected devices. And so we deal with the variety of issues that happen when you use content online. So that goes for everything from, you know, copyright and trademark issues to rights of publicity. And then more recently, dealing with issues of privacy, because when you're launching your content online, you want to get eyeballs, you want to understand who your audience is, and that involves uh, the use of data. So that's sort of how the practice unfolded. I thought I was going to be a pure entertainment lawyer, uh, but when I joined Loeb, I found out about this group, and it really seems like the future you know, the issues are really cutting edge. Sometimes there there are no laws or there are old laws that weren't written when new technology existed. So I find it to be interesting to try to help clients navigate that. Yeah, especially now in this world where data is so consumable and worth so much, it makes sense that that is where it's going now. Yeah, that's definitely true. Actually, at last year's uh, Art World Conference, I met someone who was starting to leverage AI um, in the art space. So AI to you know create uh, works of art and to give advice about works of art, which I thought was really interesting. So we're starting to see you know all the worlds you know colliding at once. Hmm. Did you always know that you wanted to go into entertainment law or where did your interest in that stem from? Uh, I mean, I've had a a winding path trying to figure out what was most interesting to me. I actually started my career off doing like securities litigation, which um, is uh, so boring. Um, And, you know, you're you're always on the other side of, you know, a company that's that's done something that involving money from the like firefighters pension fund. You know, it's really it's like the Enron type of cases. And I really didn't enjoy that work at all. And I had a chance to take time off. So the firm I worked for in 2008, when the market went down, um, basically let people leave for a period of time. They let you come back, but they they wanted to give people a break, I think with the hopes that some of us would kind of leave, but that they wouldn't be kind of paying full time when things had really slowed down. And I took that opportunity to work in film because I'd kind of taken a straight path to law school. I never had a chance to explain or anything else. And I spent about six months, you know, freelancing, doing like production assistant on different films. Um, I worked for a documentary filmmaker. I worked on his radio show for a little while. And I, I tell people, I think I made like $60 in that six month period. Um, so I wasn't really sure that I'd be able to, you know, sustain myself on that path. And I did end up back in the law, but I think that's where I sort of got the bug to how can I find a way to merge these things that I'm interested in? You know, I have this 
legal background, you know, but I, I want to practice in an area where I'm actually interested about, you know, the clients I work with and what they're creating. Mm-hmm. And what are some examples of the types of clients that you might work with? And more, I mean, I don't know if you're legally able to name names, but if you could share just a little bit of what types of services or what would a typical project, if there is one, look like? Some more concrete examples of who you work with and how you serve them? Sure. And it really, um, one of the things I like is that it really isn't typical, um, which I I find to be interesting because I come Uh into work and who knows who's going to call on a particular day. Um, And and it ranges. So I have some clients who are individuals, individual creators. So I worked with a partner uh, last year who puts out a tennis publication and they were looking to kind of move into the podcast space, trying to figure out how to monetize the, the content they were creating and turn it into more of a lifestyle brand so not just not just focusing on the publication itself but you know could you have an event that's an offshoot of that and you know the issues that arise with that are how do we protect our brand so once we start um, partnering with organizations who are going to use our name you know as in connection with an event or use the images that we've commissioned for our publication how do we protect our rights Um, and how do we protect the rights of the artists that we work with and and what do those agreements look like what are the obligations to be. If we're going to get into a partnership, what do we expect from the other side? You know, what do we want them to bring the table, bring to the table that we don't have, and what are we willing to commit to? So those are some of the issues that came up with that group. Um, I'm working with someone now who's creating a streaming platform for content creators from around the African diaspora, in particular, uh, looking to provide a platform for that content. And so some of the work we've done there is thinking about well, what do the platform terms need to look like? Are you going to sell the content? Are you going to have it available? for free? Will you run ads? Well, so what do your terms look like with your users? And then with your content creators, what do those agreements look like? You want to make sure that they've cleared all the rights to whatever content's going to be running on your platform so you're not liable for it. Uh, so kind of walking through those agreements as well. And then kind of on the other end of the spectrum, you know, we represent major companies, you know, NBC, Universal, for example, that might be a company we work with or we work with big tech companies. Um, and, you know, those projects vary Sometimes it might be creating a mobile app. It might be rolling out a website. They might be looking to stream content. And we deal do with the deals. And we also give advice on, well, what are the laws in this area? What do you need to look out for? So the, it really ranges from advice and counsel to helping negotiate the agreements that give our clients the legal protections that they need. Yeah, I was going to ask if that looks like helping to broker or facilitate some of those deals? Or is it more looking over or drafting agreements? Um, And it almost sounds like there's an element of counseling or maybe some business strategy involved. Yeah, definitely. It's it's kind of all the above. And it depends on on the on the size of the the company, you know, so a smaller company or a smaller client uh, might need you to do all of the above, right? So it's a little bit of business strategy. It's saying, well, these are the terms we've been offered. Is this standard? you know, should I be pushing back for more? Uh, this might be only the second deal I've done in this area. So I don't really know if I if there's more I can ask for, if, if I just have to kind of accept these terms. And so we can help with some of the strategy. You know, a bigger company, obviously, first has more leverage and more power. Um, but they also have, you know, a huge in-house team of business people who usually negotiate the terms of the deal on their own. And then the lawyers come in to make sure the legal protections are in place. So, uh, you know, in the case of a bigger client, it's less likely that we're coming in to say, we want to negotiate for these fees, for example. It's not like the the money structure. It's more making sure the rights are protected and the right obligations are in place. Mm-hmm. I would love to hear more about the work that you do with independent content creators, as you called them. Um, I, I think also the work that you're doing with these large companies is really interesting. And I can imagine there's a lot of parallels and getting to work on both sides of that equation. But in thinking about our audience and even Amanda and I, who are you know mostly independent artists or you know maybe working on solo, but there's sometimes small collaborative projects. I'm curious uh, for for that type of audience or demographic that you work with. At what point are are people usually coming to you? Is it when they are faced with maybe their first kind of major deal, or do you find that 
some of these creators are being a lot more proactive, like they just have this goal of getting to that place and are wanting to to put some of these systems in place or what's the stage you would say that people, you know, approach you to work with them? Sure. Yeah. And it, and it varies, you know, on personality. I, I worked with someone who said, you know, was launching something and his mother told him he really needed to get a lawyer. He's like, well, I always listen to my mother. So okay. I'm going to make sure to hire a lawyer. <laughs> um, or others who have had, maybe had other experiences or their partners have had other experiences and they reach a point where they say, well, now I have a document in front of me and I want to make sure the legal protections are in place. You know, in the ideal world, you get an involved as early as possible so you can be as helpful as possible. But, you know, with an independent creator, particularly when there are just, you know, budget restrictions, you know, you might get involved at the point where someone has a document in front of them from, you know, someone they're negotiating with and they want to make sure they're they're protected. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can relate to that. And I feel like every artist has been in that situation where you're faced with a contract for the first time and you're just not sure where to start. I was going to say the same thing, like times that I have contacted a lawyer have been because I have gotten a contract and I'm like, I need to make sure that like, I don't accidentally sign away my creative soul. So I'm going to send this off to my friend who is an attorney and she will look it over for me. Yeah. But it is so helpful because a lot of times the language is so confusing and you just sometimes just need someone to translate. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's unfortunate. I feel like we've gotten to a place now where there are some standard terms and the way it's written isn't the clearest, you know, uh, uh, lawyers. I don't know. I hear we tend to be a little wordy, um, long, complicated <laughs> sentences. We're using like old phrases like therefore for no reason. Um, so you get a contract and it's not kind of clear all the time what's being expected. And I think the other thing I see from time to time is that, you know, I talk to clients who, you know, it might be a friend to Situation. It might be a friend of a friend, you know, I have a lot of friends who are, who are artists or who are in the art community who will just say, you know, what do you think about this? And it'll be clear that they don't realize that they can push back on some things. And I think it depends on, you know, obviously where you are in your career, but the concept that just because someone put a document in front of you doesn't mean you have to sign it as it is. You can, you can kind of push back on that, which I think is important. And some of what I try to go over at the Art World Conference. Yeah, I I think you did a talk on like the art of negotiation last year and I was in that and it was super helpful just learning the ways that artists can advocate for themselves because a lot of times you don't feel like you have permission to challenge it and you know in the one scenario where I've I've worked with a a lawyer friend she luckily was able to advocate for me because I had no idea how to ask for what I wanted. Right. Yeah. I think that ends up being the barrier. And, you know, some of that is legal, but some of it's like psychological, like the thought that, you know, actually I have to, I think, you know, in every area of life, there's a question of how much can I push for? How much can I ask for? You know, like sometimes, I I don't know, I get the wrong order. I think, am I really going to send this food back? You know, and that's like a silly example. But when you bring that to the level of, you know, your career and you see something that comes to you and it might sound like a great opportunity and you don't want to lose it, but it's not worth sort of signing, you know, your rights away or like you said, your creative soul away for it. And so how do you find the balance between, you know, taking the opportunities that come to you, um, but having a conversation so it's, you know, productive and helpful and you end up in a good place at the end of it. Yeah. And Amanda, I remember that you had told that story on the podcast before about um, the time that you were approached by anthropology um, wanting to work with you for your designs and how you were given a contract and shared it with a friend. And initially it, it seemed like everything looked great, but they were able to take a look and just by reworking a couple of things in the agreement, get you an additional yeah, additional amount of money or you, you were just able to like put some new terms in place and yeah, that was helpful because the initial contract I had received, it like didn't have a limit to how many, like they were uh, trying to license some designs and they had not put a limit to how many items they could produce or for how long they could sell them for. And, or my friend was able to negotiate like more money for me, uh, an end date 
for that particular contract. She was able to negotiate uh, like a set limit to how many items they could produce. And then if they want, if they like had items outside of this time frame, they would have to do a whole new contract and pay me all over again. And if they did, like it, she just really hooked me up and I like didn't even think about all of those things. It's like, oh, wow, they could have owned those designs forever and made so many of them. And I only would have been paid once. And it like that never occurred to me. Yeah, that's exactly right. You'll see you'll see language that gives you rights or gives the company rights like in perpetuity, like all rights forever worldwide in perpetuity. And I see that. And, you know, if I'm sitting on the side of the creator, I say, well, no, (laughs) that's not that, you know, you don't want to agree to that. You don't want to have, you know, everything locked up, particularly if you're not getting the right value for it on the other side. And you can usually carve those rights up in a way where you can get, you know, more money or you can get access to those rights so you can use them somewhere else. Yeah. Are there typical red flags that artists approaching a contract like that should look out for? Yeah, I'm imagining a scenario where an artist receives a contract and, you know, best case scenario, they're working with a lawyer that can help them work through this and be that translator and an advocate. But if they're, you know, reading through this and it just sounds like legal jargon, what are some of the things that they should be aware of, whether it's, you know, key phrases to look out for or just terms that you see that raise some of those red flags for an artist that is maybe trying to go through this process for the first time on their own? Sure. There are probably two key sections um, and they might be labeled in different ways, but, you know, and it's kind of what we've been talking about. You know, the first side is on the rights. And so as the artist, what rights are you giving up? You know, we deal with a lot of content creators. So we look at the territory. So we'll have content creators who, yes, I'll, I'll be willing to maybe tie up my rights in this piece of content for the U.S., you know, for 10 or 15 years. But there might be an international market that I want to try to exploit. So how do I make sure to carve that out. So what are the, what's the scope of all the rights that you're giving up? And then what are the obligations on the other side? So what are you getting in exchange for it? And at the Art World Conference in particular, I think some of the scenarios we talked about were, you know, if you're entering into a show with a gallery owner, for example, you know, what kind of platform are they going to give you for your work? How, you know, how much are they going to invest with respect to marketing for your project? You know, some of what I tried to talk about is think, think about what you want to get from the relationship, right? Like, there's a kind of transactional part of I'm going to give you something and you're going to pay me for it. But is this an opportunity that is going to give you a wider platform or get you in front of a different audience? Is it an opportunity that you think you can leverage then to do more of this work? Because maybe this is your first experience and making sure that there are obligations on the other side that will help you kind of get to that place. I mean, I've looked at agreements where it'll tie the artist's rights up, like I said, in perpetuity, you know, worldwide for a really long period of time. And, you know, the, the time period depends on the space that you're in. You know, in some industries, a year or two could be long. Others, you know, 10 years might be standard. So you have to understand kind of what you're working with. Um, but then there weren't really any obligations on the other side. So it's like we could take this, you know, piece of content you created, tie it up for this really long period of time and put it in the drawer and not do anything with it. And you won't have the opportunity to take it somewhere else, particularly in this time where, you know, we have all these platforms available to us. Yes, it's great to work with a partner, but you can get your work out in the world on your own. And if you have it tied up and you don't have the opportunity to do that, that could be really detrimental. Mm-hmm. So looking at the obligations that the other side has as well. And usually that those are broken down into like a license, a section in the agreement on licensing or rights. And then it should be labeled as clear as obligations, even though the language in the section itself might not be that clear. But, you know, the headers of an agreement, I think, can at least be helpful to guide you to where where do I need to focus to make sure that the substance of this agreement is aligned with what my expectations are. And there should be organizations like, I don't know, um, in New York, for example, we have volunteer lawyers for the arts. um, And that's a great kind of nonprofit that artists can work with, at least. And they do some trainings on, you know, protecting your rights, uh, you know, for a variety of different type of artists. They have like programs for photographers and for filmmakers, for fine arts. At least I can give you an overview of what to, you know, spot check before you go to a lawyer, particularly if you don't have, you know, the budget for a lawyer or a lawyer friend you can call who can do you a favor. 
Yeah, that's a great resource though. I feel like I share them out all the time. And I've also been to workshops that they've put on um, back in Baltimore or you know, taken a, a contract to them when I was mural painting with a friend or partner and we were you know, working with clients. And, and at the time, you know, we were newly graduated. And, and in a lot of cases, we weren't necessarily presented with a contract where you know, we were being asked to create an agreement or we were just trying to you know, do that to, in order to formalize our own relationship and so we were really it felt like we were feeling our way in the dark because we didn't know what resources were out there to be able to start to put something like that together are there other things you would recommend for artists who might be in a similar situation where you know there are things that they should be looking out for within an agreement that they're given but if they're having to create their own Contracts. Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts is probably the one I go to because I think that I think they're the best and most focused in this space. I do know that, you know, depending okay. on the city that you're in, there might be some law schools that have uh, law and arts clinics. Uh, so like I was in the law and arts clinic when I was in, in law school and, you know, artists can come in and get, you know, kind of the pro bono services. And, and depending oh, on what you're cool. doing online, um, you know, Legal Zoom has very basic. So if you're like incorporating a company or... Yep, that's how I trademark my business name. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, we say if you're, you know, you should, when you get to the place where you can, you should have like a human take a look at it. But just to make sure you have like the baseline protection, like Legal Zoom at least has those documents that would get the basic terms in place. So that's a good resource as well. Yeah. And as someone who's worked with Legal Zoom, it was super easy because I think I had not filled out the paperwork properly initially and like they had contacted me and helped me figure out like what information to give them. It made the whole experience a lot easier because I had never dealt with a trademark issue before and I had like all of a sudden saw another brand with my name and it was so helpful being able to like actually email with somebody and have them explain like oh yes for a trademark it, you can't just trademark the name for everything. Right right right. <laughs> Which I I had no idea about it. I was like, can't I just trademark it for everything that I do under my business? And they're like, no, you'd probably need an individual one for each thing that you do. But we worked it out. But I definitely would not have been able to figure that out without some help. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, there's some nuances between, you know, trademark and copyright that it's helpful to have someone to go to to help put it into some to some context. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, for sure. I've seen this happen a lot to other artists. Um, and I know it's definitely happened to me before, where say, um, a brand or an individual is using an artist's work without their knowledge or consent or compensation. What are the options that an artist has to, uh, to handle a situation like that, where maybe their work is being used without their consent? Or, you know, say I make a design, and then I see it in Target. And I'm like, well, I didn't approve that. I think the first thing to do is to make sure that you have coverage for it, make, make sure it's protected. So if it's something that can be, you know, copyright, make sure you have the copyright protection in place before you kind of reach out to the person. And, you know, and ideally, as you go along, you know, artists really should be documenting their work with dates and timestamps. So you can say, you know, like this is I made this, you know, at this particular period of time. That way you can go back if you see it out in the world later. But if you see it in some place like a Target, you know, obviously figure out who's made the product, you know, sort of who to contact. You know, if you were going through a lawyer, you would, you know, send a cease and desist letter. So when we have clients who have these issues, we send a letter, we, you know, document the fact that, you know, the work is protected, that it, you know, originated with, you know, whoever the client is. And we also send documentation of, you know, the, the fact that it's been copied, having it side by side, and then, you know, ask them to cease and desist or, you know, enter into a license agreement. Now, that has varying levels of success, kind of depending on who you're dealing with. Um, so some people, yeah. some people will push back and say, well, it wasn't, you know, it's not really original or this is distinctive or I came up with, the, or we came up with this on our own. It has nothing to do with this artist because, you know, just separately we've come up with this creation and, you know, the more connections you can make. So if you'd, if you'd gone to say with the anthropology example and you'd pitched a design to them and they didn't take it, but then you 
see that design, you know, out in the world, you know, out in a shirt, then you have more of a kind of a chain to show where they would have copied it from you, because that ends up being a key thing to to demonstrate that the work was viewed and was and and was copied. And how do you show that the copying actually took place? Um, so it's really it's really a lot of fact gathering, um, and then going to the going to the business and trying to you know get them to either compensate you or you know if something's out in the world, the likelihood that they're going to pull it out is probably low just because there's a lot of expense involved with that. So, you know, and, and bigger artists like the, like the estate of Prince, for example, and Prince when he was alive, the Michael Jackson estate, like some of these big celebrities estates are very litigious and they will send you the letter and then they'll sue you. And so I think companies tend to be a little bit more fearful of that. I think if you're kind of Mm -hmm. an independent creator, if you're smaller and they think it's not as big of a litigation risk, then they'll either push back or hopefully if they're good actors, they'll be open to, you know, doing some negotiation. And I've seen artists, you know, we have all these tools available now. So I've seen artists take to Twitter and other social media platforms to engage in, you know, public shaming if they can't go through kind of back channels, you know, to get their to get their message out um, or to at least get some compensation. And I mean, honestly, that's that's a way to get attention sometimes because half the battle. So say you do say you, you do have copyright protection for your work, like you filed it with the copyright office, you have all your documentation. It, sometimes it, figuring out who to go to to send the complaint to ends up being a challenge. You know, do you send it to, you know, the email on the website that could go into some black hole? Do you send it, you know, how do you find a contact? You know, I know at the firm, yeah. sometimes we'll get a request, like we're looking, Some someone has a picture that's up that they want taken down or someone's image is out there and they don't like the way it's being used. Who do we know at the platform where it's, where it's out there? Who can we reach out to? Because if you go through kind of their normal public channels, it ends up being very difficult sometimes. So social media ends up being a way where you can try to reach a brand when you can't get to them by, you know, just you can't pick up the phone and call somebody because that almost never happens anymore. Do artists inherently have the right to the work that they've created? Like, do you think that having the copyright is very necessary in those instances or is just the fact that you know you've created this work at a certain moment in time and you know have some documentation or record of that is that ever enough in those situations copyright covers certain material um, but if it's your original work then you have the copyrights to it. Filing with the copyright office gives you the right to enforce it legally. So, you know, most artists don't, you know, say create a work of art and then like, you know, submit their filing to the copyright office. That's not usually the -hmm. first thing that you think to do. And you often don't have to do it again until you are up against an issue where you're trying to protect that right. So in order to like file a suit, you have to show that you've filed, filed with the copyright office. And, you know, this comes up more with, you know, we have clients who are writers and so we're dealing with like literary works or, or music material, for example. But, you know, this can touch other types of art as well. And it really comes to the point, you know, it could be a performance, for example. Performances could be subject to copyright as long as it's derived to a, ten- a tangible form. So it's been, you've captured it on video, for example, um, or a photograph obviously has been captured and photographed. The filing with the copyright office becomes necessary when it comes time to enforce your rights. So if, if you had unlimited time and money and a lot of resources, I'd say, well, everything you do, make sure you file it. That way you're not kind of scrambling when you have an issue to protect yourself. But I know in reality that, you know, that's not really how most artists are going to operate. Sure. And I was going to ask if that's something you can do retroactively. Like if you created a work years ago and then you find yourself in that situation, can you then go back and file the copyright for it? Yes. Okay. It's not too late at that point. No, it's not too late because it's still yours. Like you, it's the right is created when you create the work of art. Um, It's the filing is kind of the legal paperwork that has to be done, you know, behind the scenes. Mm Mm-hmm. Another organization that I learned about at Art World Conference through one of the panels was Artists' Rights Society. I had never heard of them before because it sounded like they are able to track or they're keeping their eye out if you're a member, um, for instances, of copyright infringement on your work. Um, It almost sounded too good to be true, the fact that you could just become a member for free and that they had um, the resources to be able to kind of scout and, and keep an eye out for 
you know, cases where your work, the copyright might be infringed without your knowledge um, and then notifying you when that's happening. I've heard of them, but I'm not that familiar with, you know, kind of yeah. their success rates. But kind of what we we're talking about before, understanding the practical reality that most artists aren't, you know, filing these copyrights and, you know, monitoring on a regular basis. It makes sense to have an organization that can do this on an artist's behalf. And I think, you know, okay. a society like that is important because it brings people together. You know, if we're thinking about kind of power and leverage and power and numbers, if you bring a, a lot of kind of smaller independent artists together under kind of an umbrella like this artist rights society, I think it has kind of a bigger impact act, you know, on, we'll call them bad actors who might seek to use your work without your permission. Actually, I should take that back. I shouldn't say bad actors because I think that, you know, part of at least what I see sometimes is that people who are working in big companies, particularly if you're doing marketing or advertising, we see this on social media a lot. Because of the way we use social media in our personal lives, I see you see that kind of trickling over into how the marketing person at an organization is using it or the design person is using it in their professional lives. So, you know, where in my personal capacity, I might, you know, screenshot a picture and post it up on my personal page or, you know, use it or share it or whatever. And I don't think to ask for permission, but I'm not using it for a commercial purpose, right? I'm not going to make any money from it. I'm just doing it, you know, as commentary. Sometimes we'll see, and this isn't like a company's policy usually it's usually someone who they're doing this as part of their day-to-day job and they don't realize it's not the right thing to do is that they they do the same thing they go to a site they screenshot a picture and and they post it up but now you're using it in a commercial capacity and it's completely different so like one example Catherine Heigl a few years ago was like pictured coming out of a Dwayne Reed carrying a Dwayne Reed bag and Dwayne Reed took got a picture of it put it up on their site I think it was either Twitter or social or Instagram and said, oh, look, even Katherine Heigl loves shopping at Dwayne Reed. Well, you know, celebrities get paid millions of dollars to speak on behalf of brands and they paid her nothing. It was probably a marketing person that saw the picture, snapped it and put it up and she sued them for something like $6 million. They settled. Yeah, they settled. I can't remember what the, I don't think they disclosed the number that they settled for, but that's just an example of, you know, what would be fine on your personal page is not fine, obviously, when you're posting on behalf of a company and using it in a commercial context. And, you know, that happens with photographs all the time. Um, I think it's just sort of the nature of social media makes us think that we can grab something and we don't realize the value that it has behind it when we're using it commercially. Yeah, that's so interesting. And how context and intent is everything and, and how easy it is to just, you know, share and repost images makes it seem more innocent or like it's not, it's just so easy to do that um, I could see how the lines would get blurred really easily. Yeah, yeah. A couple years ago, I did a lot of um, like social media kits for companies kind of here are the rights. And it wasn't really for the lawyers at the company. It was usually for like the marketing team or the design team, you know, here Here's how to here's how to kind of interact online. So if you want to get permission and you have to get permission, here's how to here's how to do it. Like go to the artist page and say, hey, I really like your work. You know, do you mind if I share it? Or if you want to use it for something, you know, what would your fee be to license it for this purpose? And just kind of reminding them, here are the things you need to think about when you're posting and using social media on behalf of a company versus doing it on behalf of yourself. Are there things that you've learned or witnessed through working with some of these larger organizations or larger tech companies on content that you're they're putting out or in the ways that you've worked with them that you think would be valuable for independent artists to know? I think for many independent artists who maybe haven't had that experience of working with a large company or with a large organization um, on that scale might not really know what that other side of the equation looks like. So are there things that you think are important for independent artists to be aware of? Sure. And again, this, you know, some of it depends on how you're uh, on what the deal is or how you're engaging with the bigger company. But, you know, when you're dealing with the big company, I think they do everything at such a larger scale and a larger volume. And so, you know, you're going to be stuck with their form agreements, for example, and you'll have to work with how, you know, having to kind of push back on that. Um, you know, when you're working with a big company, they're probably maybe a little bit more nervous when they're working with. And this is not just for kind of independent creators, but this goes for smaller businesses as well. They don't want to get, they don't want to be on the hook for say your failure to clear rights for something that you're giving to them or your, your failure to get, you know, permission for the people who appear in your content or appear in your photograph. 
And so there's a little bit of nervousness. And I think that triggers some additional obligations that you see in some of those agreements. But, you know, a lot of these companies, when they're reaching out to independent creators, you know, I think there's a need on both sides, right? I think look at an independent creator, you look at a large company, you think, well, there's clearly a power imbalance there. And there is a financial imbalance and a, a resource imbalance. But, you know, these companies are reaching out because everyone's trying to stay, you know, in front of things. They're trying to stay relevant. They want to, you know, have interesting content. And if they're not able to kind of do that in-house, they're reaching out to independent creators to help them achieve those goals. And so you have power there as well. And I think kind of playing off that aspect will help with some of the, the negotiations. And, you know, typically what I see is that, you know, you're probably dealing with a business person, but that business person then has to go deal with their in-house legal, who is probably much more nervous and much more conservative and putting up more red flags than that business person is. So just kind of understanding, you know, all the people behind someone in a large company and what they're trying to, to navigate. And getting that business person on your side is usually a great way to help, you know, kind of push the legal side of things and to help get you the rights that they want, because they're probably really excited to work with you and can try to help manage kind of their internal legal team who might be putting additional obligations on you that you're not comfortable with. Yeah, that power dynamic is really important to remember. And that sort of relates to what you were talking about earlier about the art of negotiation and um, maybe some of the reasons why artists should feel empowered to negotiate. I'd be curious to know what are some other strategies that you counsel independent creators on or that you maybe share during the art of the negotiation um, during the conference that that might be useful to artists who have some of those mental hangups that make them fearful or nervous to negotiate around the terms of an agreement. And some of it sounds like it may come back to just understanding the terms, like knowledge is power and, you know, equipping yourself with the information so that you can kind of confidently speak to what's working or what's not working for you. But are there other strategies beyond that that you find useful in having some of these conversations with with other artists? Sure. I mean, to your point, you know, as much information that you can get, the better, right? So that is both understanding the agreement, but, you know, to the extent you're part of a community and you can find out, do other, have others, you are your friends or groups that you're in, have other people work with that organization? What kind of terms were they able to get? You know, what are the, the pain points? You know, some of what we went through in the, in the art of negotiation workshop is understanding, you know, you have the things that you need. Whoever's on the other side, they have the things that they need and trying to understand what those things are and, and finding a way to kind of meet in the middle. So if they're afraid of, you know, investing in something that might not work, you know, how can you have a conversation with them and get them comfortable that they're going to get the value out of what they're, of the agreement that they're entering into? Some of that kind of background intel you might be able to find just sort of from asking around and trying to find out as much as possible about who you're dealing with on the other side. That way you're equipped with all of the information that you need. But I think in terms of being able to advocate for yourself, it's really about knowing what is important to you that helps you have the conversation. And that also lets you know what to give up. Because if you go through an agreement, I might go through an agreement for a client, I could find, you know, 50 things that in the ideal world, we'd want to push back on. But I know, A, you know, you want to get the deal done, you want to be able to have the opportunity, you don't want to burn any bridges or, or get a reputation for being, you know, difficult necessarily. And so there might yeah. be just like a handful of things well, yeah, we can probably give on the rest of this because, you know, at the end of the day, it's not going to be perfect and no one expects that. But these are the four things that we really, really want to have because that's sort of why we're getting into this. You know, understanding what those things are and then finding a way to kind of articulate the value of that to the other side, I think, ends up being very helpful. And you always go in. So say there, I won't say 50, say there are 10 points you, you have a problem with, four really important you go in with the 10, right? And then you give up the six that aren't important in exchange for the four because there'll be some back and forth. And you'll say, well, look, we'll be willing to let this go if we can make sure we get this point in. Like that's part of understanding some of the negotiation strategy. So you want to give yourself leverage and not show your cards all, you know, up front. So you don't want to go in and say, look, this is the thing I have to have. You want to go in with more than that and then show yourself giving. That way, if you're giving, ideally, then they start to give and you can at least get something out of the deal. Some of the strategy issues. So you always want to add a couple of additional points 
points into whatever your list of really important things are. That way you have something to give on. Hmm, that's good advice. And it's a good reminder too, because I, I think there can be a lot of fear around this whole process, especially when there's either those psychological barriers at play or just the feeling of the lack of knowledge around whatever it is, you know, if it's a legal contract or just the terms of what whatever the agreement is. And so I think that sometimes that can lead to other fears, like the risk of losing the opportunity or of, like you said, you know, appearing to be too difficult or just, you know, the fear of negotiating at all. And so just that reminder that it's also okay to ask questions and that, you know, if they're pushing back on something, it doesn't necessarily mean that they don't want to work with you or that, you know, everything is at risk, but just that maybe there's another pain point there that you haven't discovered yet or asking to try and better understand their needs um, too, instead of being, you know, so hung up on what's what your perception of it is or what's happening on in your side. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I'd say, you know, as much as possible, you know, get out of the contract. Um, meaning, you know, if you walk in and you say, well, this line here says this, you know, then that kind of sets like an, an adversarial tone as opposed to saying, well, I just want to understand how you anticipate this playing out. Or I just want to understand, you know, what this will look like in real life or what the plan is for this. And then if that conversation is aligned with what you're looking for, but isn't reflected in the document, then you can go back and say, okay, well then, you know, based on our conversation, I'm going to make this change to this agreement so we can make sure we're all on the same page. And I think if you kind of start with a conversation as opposed to starting with, here's this line I'm going to cross out of, a, of an agreement, okay. you can have a more productive conversation initially and it ends up just being on friendlier terms. So depending on the size of a company and kind of where the position is, I might say, you know, I'll have a conversation with you, but don't bring the lawyers in immediately just because it's good to keep things friendly to the extent possible and then bring the lawyers in when you have to. But there's sometimes you can get the thing you need without kind of starting with like a legal fight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. I was wondering if often you're a part of these conversations with the independent creators that you work with. Um, are you typically in the room and, and working through this with them? Or are these things that you might be counseling them on behind the scenes that they're then taking into, into that negotiation? More so for smaller clients, I end up kind of counseling behind the scenes and then having them kind of go in and have a conversation on their own. Again, just because I think it changes the tone when you start to bring lawyers in the room. Before we do that, like, let's have a conversation. Now, if if you tell me the whoever you're dealing with on the other side is going to have their lawyer there, then that's when I think it'd be more appropriate to have me there as well. Because you want to, if you're, if there's going to be a lawyer involved, you want to have a lawyer on both sides, not just one. But you don't want to walk into the room or trying to open with a friendly conversation and come with a lawyer. So I just think, again, that just changes the tone of the conversation. This is a unrelated question, but it was submitted by a listener. So I want to make sure to ask it. They asked, how long is too long to sue someone or an organization for destroying artwork? Which I'm assuming means that some artwork had been damaged or destroyed. And like, what, how could you proceed after that? Oh, sure. So for every kind of cause of action, any litigation you bring, you have to have something you're suing for. So sometimes it's a tort. Sometimes it's a breach of contract. It depends on the state you're in and kind of the laws available to you. Um, But for all of those different laws, there are statutes of limitations. So say for breach of contract, in many states, breach of contract, the statute of limitations is, is six years. So if the person agreed by contract to protect the artwork or to be liable if there was damage, you could sue for a breach of that contract within a six-year period from when uh, the damage was done to the artwork. I'd have to see, okay. I'd have to check to see the other kind of grounds for which you could bring a lawsuit for that. Um, but for all of those different laws, there would be a period of time under which you could sue. And, you know, six to seven years tends to be standard for most causes of action. But again, it varies. It varies varies by state and it varies by the cause of action you're suing under. We hear that all the time that, you know, one of the biggest fears is, is you know, shipping off artwork and, and having it da- be damaged and who's going to cover that. And so ideally, that's something that gets into the agreement because then you can kind of go to that document and that can be the um, document that you sue under. Yeah, I wonder, because um, sometimes, you know, it's hard to know what you need um, as far as legal support or advice until you're in a situation where you need it. I'm wondering if there are any examples or maybe cautionary tales um, where you've seen that an artist has come to you 
after something has happened or maybe it's a little late in the game and you know had they been more proactive or sought legal counsel earlier you know things could have been a lot smoother i'm just thinking of any artists or listeners out there who maybe don't you know fortunately feel like they don't need a lawyer at this point in time but what might be some things that you know should they encounter these then they should you know possibly find some legal counsel sure and actually you know where where i see this come up a lot is in partnerships uh, particularly between either friends or you know talk to someone recently who was starting something with um with their boyfriend and you know, you go out into the world and you start this company, everything's on friendly terms and, you know, putting an agreement in place between the partners is probably not the thing you'd think to do first, right? So uh, we were working with someone who was creating t-shirt designs with, again, with a group of friends. Um, you know, they had a couple of great opportunities where those designs appeared in maybe a TV show or two, and then they started selling, and then the relationship between the friends started to break down, but there was no document to say, well, I I own this much of this company or these designs are mine and this is how we're going to divide this up. Or if we decide not to work together anymore, you know, here's how we're going to dissolve this and, and how we're going to allocate all of the assets of this partnership, even though we haven't kind of officially formed it. We've been out in the world selling products under one name and now we're fighting and we don't really have a clear path forward about how to resolve it. Um, and I think that's one place in particular, you know, where I talk to people and they say, oh, well, but we you know we're good friends and so it'll be fine and we're just going to go. We want to make sure we get we want to get these deals in place with the people we're selling our products to our, our artwork to, and we're not as focused on, you know, kind of the back of the house arrangement between, between the partners. So you're saying Nicole and I should come up with a contract for our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Possibly. But actually, this had me thinking about an example of when, I think I mentioned that I um, used to do a lot of mural painting when I was meeting with volunteers for the arts for some client contracts. And this was with a really good friend of mine that I had graduated from art school with. And so we sort of found ourselves inheriting this mural painting business or kind of, you know, organically starting up what ended up becoming a a years-long working relationship and in the beginning it was very informal and at a point we decided to create some agreements amongst ourselves just to accommodate for the kind of flexible nature of our work life and you know at different points in time one of us might move or start another job but then come back into the business later and that happened a couple times and so at first it did feel really strange to you know bring what felt like a like a legal arrangement into the what, what was otherwise, you know, just a friendly working relationship. But the way that we started to think about it that I think helped get over that hurdle was just that, you know, this is a it's a sign of respect that we respect one another. And, you know, we care about this thing that we're doing together. And so we want to make sure that we're taking care of each other. And so, you know, we're going to bring this agreement in. Um, and then also it's a reminder for us. So, you know, it's not all just our verbal back and forth or, you know, scattered emails, but that we had a central place where um, maybe years down the road when we couldn't quite remember like what we had decided to do about this certain situation, we were able to look back and we had a record of that. So I think that helped it feel like a little bit more of a friendly arrangement and less like this, you know, um, imposing legal document that we were bringing into the relationship. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Yeah, and sometimes it's just how you how you frame it, but it's helpful. It's like the like a prenup, you know, for business. <laughs> how, how are we, how are we gonna how are we gonna handle things going forward? Like, what do we want for this like business life that we're creating together? Yeah, that's a great point. All right, we'll come up with a contract for us. <laughs> Although we've had some good should. like casual rules that we've always talked about, like having our own artist practice go first and like when our lives are stressed out, the podcast can take a back burner. We always end up having these conversations about like our business and partnership, but it would be cool to have it in written form and smart. So good to know. <laughs> guiding, guiding principles, like here are the things that, you know, we're going to agree to you know, generally speaking, here's a vision, the shared vision we have. And if we want to go back to that, you know, here's how we'll, here's a process for us to kind of think about how we want to revise it. And if we disagree, how are we going to deal with those disagreements? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I know there was a, a podcast, I think it was Being Boss that, and I think that they had maybe had on a lawyer and talked about their partnership and like how they came up with a contract for that because it's two hosts. And I 
think just a couple weeks ago or months ago, they announced that like one of the hosts is going to kind of slowly start leaving the show. And it made me think of, of that because they had like set up a contract in the beginning on how, you know, one would potentially buy the other out of the business and like how would they be able to use content that had both of their voices on it for years and years. And then all of a sudden it's just right because it was so much about their personal brand. Yeah. 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 And it's smart. You know, you you always want to do that. You want to have those conversations when things are on friendly terms, because you're not going to get as, what you want when you're trying to make those decisions when things are on less friendly terms. So it's just good to plan out in advance. Um, you may have already shared this, but is there any information that you wish all artists had or, or something that you wish all artists knew in ways that they could advocate for themselves? Sure. And this is more on the softer side of things, I think. You know, I think there's some basic pieces of legal information I think that, that artists should understand, you know, so understanding about how copyrights work, understanding tra- trademarks, for example, understanding what rights to look for. And, you know, that might be kind of a separate conversation. But I think what I'd love all artists to walk away with is understanding the fact that, A, that they can negotiate. You know, you don't have to take every single deal uh, because it won't be the only deal that comes. It doesn't have to be perfect, but that you do have the ability to to advocate for yourself and to really think about the value that, you know, you, you spend so much time pouring yourself into your work and you obviously have a lot of faith in yourself. You know, artists don't have like as easy, cushy path, you know, for their careers. Usually it involves a lot of sacrifice. And I feel like most artists I talk to make those sacrifices because they really believe in their work. And so when you have an opportunity to work with someone else, like take that belief in, in, in your work and translate that into your ability to kind of advocate for the things you need and being very intentional about what those things are and, and how you and how you start to ask for them. Because the thing that I hate to hear is, well, I'm not getting anything, but I just have to take it because this is like the deal that they put in front of me. And I always say, you know, it's never something you have to take, right? You, you can have an opportunity to at least have a conversation and have a conversation in a way that doesn't make the other person go running away, but opens a door to kind of a positive dialogue. So just starting to feel more empowered to advocate for yourself, I think is something I think artists should really, you know, start to maybe it's a mantra you say to yourself in the morning before you go into that conversation but you know you do have the power to advocate for yourself thank you for saying that that was really beautifully worded and i feel seen (laughs) (laughs) thank you you're welcome yeah thank you jessica so much again for sharing your knowledge and being willing to to translate some of your work and and just impart these words of wisdom and this great advice for other artists and like i said for our listeners who are mostly independent artists to learn from some of these situations you've encountered and hear your perspective has been really invaluable well it's been great talking to you both (laughs) oh yeah and how can artists find you if they wanted to or if they needed to work with you or um if they wanted to see you speak? Sure. So as you mentioned, I'll be at the Art World Conference in LA on February 16th, um, talking just about this, about the art of negotiation. Um, you can find me, um, you can always email me. Um, I'm at Loeb and Loeb, and my email is jblee at loeb.com. And then I'm on Twitter at lawgirl821. Thank you. You're welcome. That's it for this episode of the Beyond the Studio podcast. You can find show notes, references, and a brief summary of the episode over at our website, beyondthe.studio. While you're there, be sure to sign up for our mailing list to find out about upcoming guests, special announcements, and podcast giveaways. Sorry, if I'm looking over, I'm just looking at my list of very messy questions and trying to read back my No, I understand. I think next to doctors, the lawyers are writing. Half the time, won't even look. I'm like, those aren't letters. What did I say? (laughs)